Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. The end of the reign of Elizabeth II. Elizabeth the Great, as many people will regard her. She was Britain's longest serving monarch. But who exactly was Elizabeth Windsor and what will be her legacy? Queen Elizabeth II was a much-loved and respected monarch and a truly unique figure on the world stage. A head of state without equal. Admired not just here in the United Kingdom, but across the globe by members of the public, politicians and religious leaders. I'm Denise Callanan and I'm joined here today by Irish Independent political journalist John Downing and Sunday Independent columnist Sarah Cadden. Now we've lots to discuss in terms of Elizabeth's life and times, but I do want to talk a little bit first about that mourning period that Britain is undergoing at the moment, Sarah, because there is, it is quite an extensive and well-planned process, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about Operation London Bridge? Well, the royals all seem to have a bridge attached to the plans around their deaths. Fans of the the crown will know that, though the queen's own own father was Operation Hyde Park Corner, and it's like they they were planning for the queen mother's death, which happened in two thousand two for twenty two years. But you know, nobody talks about. It because it seems rude to talk about someone's death before it happens. What happens now is very, very carefully planned. So her death, the 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 Parliament will be informed and various parties will be informed by on a secure line if there is such a thing anymore. And then the fifteen, the Commonwealth will be informed, and all different pomp and ceremony will come in, into play. Um, so the whole thing, D Day is is the day of her death and then it will be nine days D-Day plus nine before they have her funeral in Westminster Abbey. She'll be the first monarch to have their funeral in, in Westminster Abbey. And you have to remember that this is a process of she she has died but it's it's her death but also Charles' accession. So before the evening of her death, the day of her death, he will give, he is obliged to give his first, uh, speak to the nation for the first time as their new king. He will already be proclaimed as king. And on her death, his siblings will all have to kiss Charles's hand 
also as their king. And Charles is obliged to head off on a whistle-stop tour of uh, Cardiff, Belfast and Scotland to sort of embrace, let's say, the the, the United Kingdom in, uh, you know, and, and sort of give an, a, a statement of stability to the people. These rituals, of course, come, many of them date back to more fractious times when there wasn't a clear line of, of uh, succession, when you had an absolute monarchy and there was frequently, there frequently were many civil wars. There were a couple of fully fledged civil wars in the history of, uh, of Britain. So it's about that. It's also about using these funny rituals to try and uh, buoy up the, the mystique of the monarchy and to try and ensure continuity of the monarchy's mystique. Because it does seem a little old fashioned at the moment, doesn't it? That she has passed away, but that, you know, we're watching quite a modern nation next door undergo all these rituals. Sarah, you have some information about the funeral. Well, I think it's all about uh, creating a sense of unity and stability. And in in, in a society that probably feels quite fractured at the moment, you know, there are things like all flags will be at half mast, even um, flags on beaches, except not the ones that indicate danger. Uh, the stock exchange will be suspended for a day. People will, will, you know, on her death in the UK, they're waking up to, you know, having days off work and everything coming to a standstill. And that idea that this is part of all of us and we are in this together. Unity and grief. Exactly. Sort of national grief. Yes. And that that hopefully, you know, allows for continuity going forward. There, but there are funny little things like um, Prince Charles will scatter a handful of red earth from a silver bowl. Um, uh, the big, big Ben, the bell will be wrapped. When she comes to Westminster Abbey, it will ring out and then it will be wrapped in a cloth of a certain thickness in order that it then rings a muffled tone to and indicate. do we know what these signify, Sarah, or is it just I'd say you wouldn't ask why. Uh, it's more this is how just, it is. This is how we do loss, it. I suppose. Yes, and also to signify, you know, this is the way we do things. You know, the comfort of rituals, even if the rituals mm. seem strange to you. This is this is how you, we come together. You have to factor in, you know, this is the loss of a monarch uh, for whom even quite elderly people would not remember another one because, you know, this is seven decades plus. Definitely, yes. John. Yeah. And this brings us nicely into um, Elizabeth Windsor, Sarah, and the person that she was. She came to the throne in 1952, aged just 25. And she was considered an unlikely monarch. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Well, she wasn't born, unlike Charles or William, she wasn't born knowing this is in my future because it was her uncle Edward who was king and then abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson. Her father then became quite a reluctant king, but uh, quite a popular one, brought them through the Second World War with a kind of, you know, plucky kind of spirit. And um, also as, as a child, she, as a girl, it, if they'd had a son, she wouldn't have become queen. But there wasn't a son. There was just her and Princess Margaret. So that is how she became queen. So it wasn't that she grew up with this absolutely drilled into her. This is your future. And, you know, I suppose how we always see her portrayed in, in The Crown again yeah. um, and that we hear about her is that she just absolutely committed to it and, you know, sort of forsook any... Um, 
you know, desires of her own or ambitions of her own or even maybe possibly her own personality to because of her sense of duty to this role. So of her reign then, Sarah, what would you kind of recall as her standout, the high points in her career as queen? I think, you know, she 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 travelled a lot in those early years and really kind of, you know, cemented her popularity within the Commonwealth and, and around the world. And she also um, did quite a job of modernising them as not fully what you'd call now a relatable family, but they were a couple who had a family life and children and, and you know, you may recall they made a documentary, kind of besi- behind-the-scenes documentary of their, their domestic life at one point. So she sort of opened it up. Fortunately, my father and I have about the same sort of shaped head. Mm. But once you put it on, it stays. I mean, it, it just remains itself. Yeah. You have to keep your head very still. Yes. And you can't look down to read the speech. You have to take the speech up. Because if you did, your neck would break. It would fall off. So there are some <clears throat> disadvantages to crowns, but, but otherwise, they're quite important things. But her, in her opinion, her opinion always seemed to be that her greatest achievement was the Commonwealth. And that really mattered an awful lot to her. And the idea of it that it wasn't, these countries weren't colonies, they weren't ruling them, they weren't, it was this Commonwealth of equality and, and respect. Now, whether that dies with her is is another matter. Another thing. Um, and she was, you mentioned that she really, you know, brought, I suppose, the monarchy to the people in Britain because her coronation, I suppose, just with the time that it fell, it was the first to be broadcast, wasn't it? And her Silver Jubilee in 1977, there was a lot of media work there as well that wouldn't have been typical before Sarah. I think you were mentioning earlier, she, she was the person who seemed to make the royals almost relatable to the people of of Britain. And possibly to their detriment as it has played out as her children have kind of, I suppose, uh, an Irish bird might say, let her down. Her relationship with Ireland, I mean, did we actually snub the coronation back in the 50s? I don't think we did. Royalty the world over has a certain cachet and a certain appeal to particular people. And no, no less in Ireland. And there, there, so there was, we didn't have television, but there was pretty, pretty hefty newspaper and magazine coverage and so on. So people were very aware of it. She is amazing. In, if you look at it through a British uh, prism of British-Irish relations, she is amazing in that there is no other entity on either island who spans 70 plus years. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow and God bless all of you who are willing to share. 1952, she comes on the throne. 1949, Ireland declared a republic and there was retaliatory legislation. And then there were various IRA campaigns, trouble in Northern Ireland, very putting terrible strain on, on the relationships. She 
while while everybody remembers 2011 and the first visit of a reigning monarch, it's more interesting to look at her sister, the the former glamorous and and risque Princess Margaret. Uh, she was a, there was a time when she was a frequent visitor to Ireland in the early 60s, and the IRA mounted campaigns, more publicity campaigns, anti-royal campaigns, uh, outing power and daubing walls and all that sort of thing, you know. So it did show the relationship. You take it on through the 70s, all the horrors, the killing, take it to a particular day at the end of August in 1979 when the Queen's own cousin, uh, Lord Mountbatten, was blown away in County Sligo. Other people, including two children, were were killed. People were maimed. And that their relationship was very strong because he had a very strong mentoring relationship with both her husband, Prince Philip, and the incoming monarch, uh, Prince Charles. So there was a lot of terrible bitterness arising from that. And of course, never any particular comment by the Queen herself. But again, we go back to Margaret, who was quoted shortly afterwards on a visit to the US. She was in conversation with the mayor of Chicago, Jane Byrne. And she was cited as saying, all Irish are pigs. So but she was misheard. John, she was misheard. She? Apparently, she said, all Irish dance jigs. <laughs> so there you are. But uh, she, it certainly gives us a little insight into how deeply the murder of Mountbatten. Of course, that was also a day upon uh, which a, a large number of British soldiers were killed you know, right at the same point. So through those those, those strains, um, in 1977, you, you mentioned you mentioned the Royal uh, the the Silver Jubilee. Uh, she did she did visit the North, and she did in a speech in Cold Rain say that uh, a very very gingerly, very gently urged people to move on from the attribution of blame for the past. So that was an indicator of trying to reach out, trying reconciliation in very fraught circumstances very early on. I mean, good, good long time before the Good Friday Agreement and all of that. And she had five powerful words, John, in, tw- in 2011 that she said. Well, everybody remembers. Everyone remembers these. Everyone is the standout moments, the the uh, head bowing of the head, the people who were trying to murder her forces in uh, in 1916 at the Garden of Remembrance, and her attempt at Velard Biagan in where she said it was an attempt to say a hoopdrawn agus achaide, but it did uh, have impact. These symbols. Uh, were very, very helpful in terms of reconciliation. There is no doubt. And with regards to the low points of her reign, I think, John, back as early as the 60s, the incident of, of Aberfan in Wales, she was criticised yeah. at the start for that, yeah. wasn't she? Well, these these are our Celtic cousins, the Welsh, are equally ambivalent about royalty. And uh, for that, that 1966, this incident, this shocking incident happened in a place called Aberfan in the southeast of Wales. It's very close to Hereford. And just before that, there was controversy about the investiture of her successor, 
as Prince of Wales. They were reviving the title Prince of Wales, which a lot of Welsh people found uh, 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 really usurping Welsh nationality. But anyway, this incident was far more serious. A slag heap beside uh, a school, which, uh, which many people were trying to have moved for a long time, just collapsed into the school. 116 children were smothered and killed. And it was a huge world story and badly mishandled initially by the monarchy and her advisors. She delayed. She didn't go there. And then and, and there was a, a lot of opprobrium and, and controversy. But then she did go and she very largely uh, retrieved the situation with genuine expressions of grief and, and sympathy for the people of Aberfan. And Sarah, bringing us more into modern times, I mean, the controversy that the world has been speaking about really in more recent times and um, before the Queen passed was Prince Andrew and the mess. She certainly had challenges with her children and controversy, didn't she? She did, starting really with the, the, the kind of War of the Waleses with Charles and Diana and their very unhappy marriage that became very obvious. And the world was in love with Diana, which was a really tricky situation for the royals because it was us and them. So, you know, everyone was on Team Diana, really. And it was very... It was a difficult time, but it was followed then by Andrew and Sarah Ferguson separating. Princess Anne's marriage broke up. Uh, you know, all that died in the wool sense of duty, stiff upper lip, keep going at all costs, you know, just never let the side down. Really, that didn't seem to carry on into their generation. Um, then uh, Fergie had that, you know, front page of the tabloids where she's having her toes sucked by a swimming pool by her financial advisor. For years, um, you know, there had been, you know, this this kind of Sunday newspaper thing of, you know, get a royal story on the front page, but nothing that's too awful. I think it was Kelvin um, McKenzie. Yeah. And he, uh, but this wasn't, it was, this wasn't, don't let there be too much fuss. This was really, you know, blew everybody away that this would carry on. And the Queen was really, really devastated by that. I'd say she dreaded getting the morning papers because... Really for, I mean, for the 90s and from the 90s and beyond, there was really something every day that she had to deal with, wasn't there? What are they going to do next? And you have to, it has to have informed the fact that she made it, always made it very clear that she wasn't going to abdicate, that the only way Charles was going to accede to the crown was when she died. And, you know, she lived to a great age. So and, he and had to wait and wait. Was, but a feeling that she was also holding this institution, what they call the firm. Yes. Which, holding it together. And also doesn't really speak of great, great faith in Charles's ability. No. But the problem for them now is this, this, the days ahead now will seem like this massively unifying um exercise and you know people will be out on the mall when they're preset the 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 um coffin processes up there you know there will be people watching on TV everything will grind grind to a halt as if this really really matters but really is this going to seem like it really really matters and then just it doesn't matter at all and Charles is an old man she, because she has lived to a great age and refused to abdicate, he is now elderly 
So you would kind of, if they want to keep the show on the road, I would think Charles needs to have a bit of fun with it for a couple of years and then pass it on to William while William is still relatively young. He's coming into his 40s and he, you know, a bit, bit more relatable, has children, small children, brings them to school, seems to bring them to sports and normal kind of things. But it all, they have a fragile time ahead. So do you think she did enough, Sarah, or do you think her death now is really symbolic of the end of the, the monarchy and what it was? I, I, thinking about this and what she has kind of lived by this idea of like duty and dignity. And you have to wonder, are they massively valued qualities in the world that we now live in? Uh, for example, in terms of getting the news of, of her death out, how, you know, that would have taken a long time in her father's time to get it out. Now, you know, in the lead up to her death, they all must have been worried about how is this going to get on the internet, you know, practically before it's happened. You know, those characteristics that she has embodied are quite fractured and you know you have to wonder going forward is there going to be value put on this idea of they're doing this out of a sense of duty and dignity or is it just going to be these people are living off the fat of the land let's get rid of them and John what do you think I mean you know Britain as a whole and beyond that the Commonwealth do you think really there's an appetite there for the British monarchy as we know to continue or do you think there could be an end to it I think well History teaches us things do end, even just because something has lasted for, you know, two or for perhaps 1500 years doesn't mean it's not going to end. It is the British monarchy is on a dangerous corner right now and they have they have an existential job to do to stay in business. But I think they have the royals have uh, over the centuries, and particularly more recent centuries, shown a certain capacity for reinvention, self-invention. And I think that is more likely than seeing the demise of the monarchy. Constitutional monarchy, not my favourite form of government, but it's functional. It works for them. Well, I think the next few weeks and months will tell us a lot. Sarah, John, thank you very much for your time. I'm Denise Callanan and today's Indo Daily was produced by Siobhan McGuire, research by Tabitha Monaghan and Mark Donlan and sound designed by John Smith. Archive clips from independent.ie, BBC, ITN, ITV, Sky News and BBC Northern Ireland. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.